Today I want to get into my favorite story in the Bible. And um, if you've been around me for very long, one of my favorite things to do is to uh, uh, destroy children's stories. That sounds so bad when it comes out of my mouth, but but um, I don't mean it like that. I grew up in church. Of course, when I was in Sunday school as a kid, we had the felt boards and stuff. Some of y'all may know what I'm talking about. But this David and Goliath was one of the big ones. And um, if you were here for the study of Jonah, you know, we called it No More Veggie Tales. So uh, that's kind of where I come from on things. I, I like to look at the truth. And a lot of times, a lot of times for us, we don't get past stories. And so when we get older, uh, all of a sudden, the Bible becomes a little more difficult to believe. Or the Bible becomes a little more... Boring. I've read that story before. I know that story. I know how that goes. But there's always so much more in the Word of God than you expect to see. That's the cool thing about it. You can read, read stories a thousand times. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you can re-listen to a sermon a thousand times and get something different. But I really believe that if you continue to look back at the Word, you can always find new things in there. You've got to be careful. You don't want to like go intentionally digging to find some super natural thing that nobody ever saw before because that's not necessarily in there either. But in any event, this this story to me, as I got older, my name's David, so obviously I have a namesake related to this, but as I got, I always loved it as a boy. When I got older, I started to really study this story and look at it a little bit more, and a lot of it became shocking to me. And then uh, as I got even older and, and, and walking more into the Word, especially in studying Hebrew and different things, and there's a lot more you pull out, a lot more you see in this story. So I want to go through it, and I know we don't have enough time to really do it as, as deeply as we want, but there's nowhere to pause the story. So we're going to go through it. And I'm going to, if you've got a Bible, you're in luck, because we're going to do some reading today. If you don't, then just listen and follow along with your ears. But... Uh, it's in 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to go through the story, and I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of commentary as we go through. In other words, I'm just going to kind of give you my thoughts on some things, maybe point a few things out. And then I want to point out the message in the story in the end of it once we get done. So let's do it in that order. Charles Swindoll has a great quote on this. He says, David lived by a very simple principle. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. I like that. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Today we're going to go through this, and I called it Invincible. started to call it he was no hero, but he was, so I don't want to rob him too much of that. But he's not the point. The point is that he was invincible, which is interesting. People may think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, you're going to find out why I say that. So look at verse 1, and again, we're going to do a lot of reading as we go through it, and then I'll, I'll get in the meat of it afterwards. Verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokal, which means which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sokal and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Y'all are glad I'm reading. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, I'm going to show you this because this was the coolest moment, I think, in my whole entire life. Last year, or yeah, almost a year ago, in March, we were driving along, headed from South Israel to, from the desert in Israel to Jerusalem, and we come up on this field, and the guy just stops the bus, and we all get out, and I'm like, um, do we break down? What are we doing? As you can see, there's nothing there. So I'm like, what's going on? And um, we started kind of walking more towards the center of the field, 
And you have this right here. On the left, that hill going up, that was Israel's side of the hill. What you're looking into is the Valley of Elah. And on the right side is where the Philistines were. So it was a real place. It did exist. Now watch this. If you look, y'all know the story, so I'm not, no spoiler alert here. Over along the ridge line, right at the base of that ridge where the, where the uh, Israelites were camped, is this dry creek bed. And there's actually a brook there. This is me standing in that brook right along the base of that ridge. The place exists. The place exists. Okay? So now you got a mental picture. It's in your mind. All right? And verse 4, it says, And there came out... Now make a note. This is cool. This is not in any English translation. It says, And he came out, the man of the spaces between. I think that's awesome, and I'll tell you why later. But make a note. Uh, Goliath was referred to by the Hebrew people as the man in the spaces between. He says, and there came out man in the spaces between from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. Anybody know how tall that is? Nine feet. Huh? Nine feet, nine inches. Wow. You're being for real about it. Yeah, so you're talking about almost ten feet. Verse five. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? You should underline that. Servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. Now, definitely underline come down to me, and I'll explain why in a minute. But that's a strong statement. Come down to me. But servants of Saul, what's he, why is he really saying that? Why don't he say, you're Israelites, we're Philistines. Why does he say servants of Saul? What, what's he really trying to do? Who's he really calling out? Saul, if you remember, just make a note, 1 Samuel 9, 2, we already read this. It says from, it's talking about Saul. It says from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So Saul was shoulders taller than everybody else there. So who do you think Goliath sees when he walks out? Not to mention that's their king, right? So he walks out, he sees their king, and he's saying, you're servants of this guy, send out a warrior. You know, that's what he's trying to say. I'll fight your king. He's the tallest guy here anyway. But, of course, we know Saul's a coward. We've already talked about that. Verse 9. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. You could change the word servants to slaves. Much better word. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid, terrified, much better word. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle, and the names of his three sons who went into the battle were Elab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. Now, we've talked about this a little before in the past few weeks, so 
Verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Remember, that's a great verse. That tells us the, the integrity of David, that he's already been anointed king of Israel. But he's going to, the, going to Saul and playing a harp to drive away a demon. And going back and taking care of sheep in the middle of a field or on a hillside at the same time, even though he's been anointed to be king. So, verse 16, for 40 days... The Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. I don't know if there's significance to 40 days. Maybe somebody's got some, but I didn't really discover any without trying to get too spacey. Uh, Verse 17. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So basically, he sends some stuff, says, go to the front, check on your brothers, take some gifts for their company, blah, blah, blah. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the Valley of Elah, that's what we just looked at, fighting with the Philistines. But are they really fighting? No. There's a bunch of talk going on. And maybe they're grumbling about Saul. I have no idea. But look at verse 18. It says also, or excuse me, look at verse uh, 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Now, what's neat about that is it's kind of pointing out the fact that David, this is just another day for David. David had no idea before the day was over he was going to be hero. He knew about Goliath. He knew about any of that. This is just another day. Hey, get up and take these gifts up to the front lines. Go check on your brother. It's just another day. And he commanded, or let's see, and he came to the encampment to the host. As the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So oh, everybody's so brave, yelling and screaming until Goliath walks out. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army versus army or army against army. Get this in your head. They do this every day. Forty days. They get up. They put on all their armor. They come out to one hillside. One comes out to the other hillside. And you guys could see it's not that far apart. And they're all clanging there. I mean, you could shoot arrows at each other easily across that. And they're all clanging there, metal and screaming and yelling. Think of Braveheart. You know, that's the way I picture this story. They're all banging their swords against their iron and they're yelling and they're screaming at each other. And then here comes the nine foot dude and it's over. That's really, really the word of the ten foot, really. That's the way it ends. Verse 22. And David left. And, and they do that every day for 40 days. Let's see, let's see, verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, guess who came out? What was his name? What did they call him? I told you a minute ago. Man of the spaces between. There it is again, same phrase. Behold, he came out, the man of the spaces between, comma, the champion, comma, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Now, for Goliath, just like David, it's just another day. Goliath had no idea he would be dead. But it's just another day to him, 40 days like this, nothing unusual. But it says, and David heard him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid, just like every other day. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has, now underline that, has come up. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, brief moment of commentary here. Notice before, what does it say? 
what I tell you underline before? Let him come down. Because he's gone into the valley and he's yelled up the hill and said, come down. Now, now, 40 days later, what's Israel saying? This Philistine who has come up, he is now walking right into their face. Walking right into their camp. And I've read a few commentaries on this that agree. I think this is an awesome picture of tolerating sin. This is a great picture of tolerating sin. If you tolerate it long enough, it'll walk right into your face. You can't tolerate it at all. Now, I'm not talking about tolerance in, in, in government affairs, although that can be part of it. But if you tolerate it, certainly in your own life, it's going to walk right into your face. I know that for a fact. And that's nothing new. What was the first sin that occurred outside of Adam and Eve that we know of? They're kicked out of the garden, and then what happens? Cain kills Abel, right? What does God say right before that happens? Do you know? God speaks to Cain. He says, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. He's telling him. Is creeping up your hillside, manner of speaking. You better watch out. What you're thinking, what you're tolerating in your mind is creeping. And that's really what's going on here. Originally, Goliath has come down, but 40 days later, they've done nothing about it. And now he's creeping right up into the camp. First Samuel 17:26 says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? That's rhetorical. He's like, what? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Basically, that means this he doesn't have the promises that Israel does. That he should defy the armies of the living God. Now, if you get nothing else out of this, you need to have that word living circled. How can David walk up and say this? Because he knows God is alive. If you know, listen to me, if you know God is alive, you, know, you can say, I believe in the living God. You can carry around your living Bible and all that other stuff. But there's a difference between that, saying that, and knowing that. And I'm not talking even about salvation. I'm just talking about knowing it, that it empowers you because you know he's alive. I'm also not talking about um, supernatural gifts and all that kind of thing. I'm just saying you are fully aware that he is 100% totally alive. All right, that's where David is. Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way. In other words, they repeated what they said before. Yep, that's what he said. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Eliab, anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? And the reason he's saying come down now is because Bethlehem is higher up in the hills. So he's saying you've come down to where we are. He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Now, some translations kind of read that you've come down to be in the battle. I think that he is really just bitter. He's the oldest brother, and he's mad because he's been serving Saul. His youngest brother, who's taking care of sheep, has been anointed king. And I think he may still be a little bit bitter about that. Uh, but David's cool, man. I like, I like David's response. Verse 29, he says, what have I done now? Doesn't that sound like brothers? What did I do now? In verse 30, he says, And he turned away from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way. Notice David doesn't fight with his brother. David doesn't argue with his brother. He picks and chooses his battles. He turns, he says, you know, what I do now? And he just walks off. He's not discouraged or bothered, whatever. He walks off and um, spoke, speaks to somebody else, gets the same answer, because David is just dumbfounded that, that nobody's doing anything, much less that there's such a reward on the table. 
Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated. They repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. It's pretty funny. Saul didn't even really say much anything. He sends for David and David's like, look, man, I'll, I'll take him. And, David, and Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Now, here's the secret to the whole story. It's the word on the board, invincibility. David's secret weapon was invincibility. I think this is awesome. David could not lose, and he knew it. Look at the next verse. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took a lamb from the flock. Now, before I go any further, this is the way Hebrew reads. He is the one keeping the servant of you. That's what he says. He is the one keeping the servant of you, Saul, over the sheep. When came the lion or the bear? What he's saying is, he's saying that when a lion or a bear came, he kept me. He's the one that's keeping me now, and he kept me when a lion or a bear came after my sheep. Verse 35, and he says, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. How many of y'all chased down a lion or a bear in your lifetime? Especially as a boy. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard. I love that. If he arose against me, don't miss that. Do you realize that David went after the lion or the bear assuming it would let go? Assuming that it would let go. Because he was invincible in a manner of speaking. He was God's man. He was, as C.S. Lewis likes to say, a son of Adam. You know, and he ran after these two and they will let go. Now, if they don't, look what he does. He Grabs them by the beard, strikes them, and kills them. And then verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine, or Philistine outside of your promises, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. In Hebrew, again, that verse says, and he will be to the Philistine like he was to the bear and the lion. That's the way it reads. He will be to the Philistine like he was to the bear line. So David is nowhere taking any credit. David is not taking any credit. And our, he, our English translations try to work it out. But in Hebrew, it's clear. David is taking no credit. He is invincible because his God is invincible. David's secret weapon here, invincibility, is because he belongs to God. And he knows that God has been defied. And he is not, one, well, not a bit afraid. I don't understand why he's not afraid, because I'm not near the spiritual walking person that David was. I want to get there. But there are people today that are that way. You've got to be careful that you ask to be that way. You know what I'm saying? I know you want to be. We should all want to be. But you've got to be careful. I used to hear people say all the time, I want to see Jesus. I, want to, I just want to see him. I just want to see him. And then I start reading all these stories of martyrs that claim they see him. And then I start realizing, and be careful what you ask for. You might see him, but he might take you to a prison underground in a third world country before you see him. You want to see him? Let's see how bad you want to see him. So in any event, 
Verse 37 says, And David said, The Lord who delivered me here is given credit, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Now, that's awesome. You know what that is? That's an Old Testament spiritual cliche. Praise Jesus for you, brother. That's what he's saying. Go and go with the Lord. Go and God be with you, brother. What he's really saying is, you go do it because I won't. I'm a coward. You go do it. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but this is a huge problem in churches today. Huge problem in churches today. That's why you have so many churches that either aren't mission-minded or the ones that are mission-minded, a tenth of the population of the church is actually doing anything. The rest are saying, we'll pray for you, brother. Go and God be with you. I, I, I pray that you just reap the harvest, brother. All those great spiritual cliches that you say when what you're really saying is, I want no part of that. I want no part of that. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go. Long story short, it was way too big. He says, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones. Now get this, why does he take his staff if he's got the stones? And why does he take five stones if he only needs one? You ever wonder why he picks his staff up? Let me finish the sentence and we'll talk about it. He says, from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. You saw the brook. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, the word staff there could be one of two things, because it translates either way. It could be one of a couple of things. 23rd Psalm, your rod and your staff comfort me, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What he's talking about here is a shepherd carried, that, that's what that whole Psalm, 23rd Psalm is about. God is the shepherd. You have a staff and a rod, a shepherd did. A staff had the little hook thing, you know, the bow peep thing. And that was to, if a sheep got caught in a bush or something, you could hook it by the neck and pull it out. Um, the staff, or the rod, was something else. The rod was a weapon. The rod was more of a, something to beat an animal with if it came after your flock or something. Um, could be either one of those. The staff doesn't really make sense in that sense. Sounds more like it could be a rod. The same word is used of the sticks that they used to carry the Ark of the Covenant. That's pretty interesting. Me, I think it was a symbol of authority because in Genesis 49.10, there's a prophecy of the tribe of Judah. We talked about this the first week that we got into all this. There's a prophecy prophesied on Judah that Israel, his father, gives to him that the scepter and the rod will not depart from his family or his house until, Dave, quick translation, until the Messiah or Jesus or the Son comes. And we already talked about that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to go back to the first week in the podcast, uh, iTunes slash David Wiley or Sermon.net slash David Wiley, and listen to the first week of this study and you'll hear it. But in any event, I think it's more of that. I think he grabbed that rod. I don't even think it was in his mind. I think it was just a sense of he's carrying the authority of Judah. And you'll see why I think that in a minute, a little bit more. But he's carrying the rod, the authority of the house of Judah. Verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Um, we talked about ruddy. Some believe that means redhead because the word ruddy literally means red. So, you know, we, we're not sure. 
but verse 43, and the Philistines said to David, am I a dog? But you come to me with sticks. And the Philistine, because he's seeing the rod in his hand. Philistine cursed David by his gods. Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I love that he says that he comes to him in the name of the Lord. Not just representing the Lord, actually literally in the name of the Lord. Um, Rosalind and I were talking about this earlier. In Isaiah chapter 45, listen to this. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 42, write it down. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn, because there's nobody greater, I'm the only one. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out a righteous word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now that's pretty blunt, hardcore. What does Paul say in Philippians? Anybody know? He quotes this verse back. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Paul quotes this back and he says what? He has a little twist in it. To who? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. To Jesus, he says that God has exalted him as the name above all names. Verse 10, it says, so that at the name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, let me ask you something. If you don't believe Jesus and God, you don't follow the line of thinking of a trinity, we need to talk. But before we need to talk, I need you to wrestle with things like this. How's that possible? I am God. There is no other. I swear by my own name because there is no other name. Now, Paul turns around and says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Quotes that same passage in Isaiah, but then turns it and says, Jesus, you've heard the song, there's power in the name. You know what I'm saying? I think somebody read the story of David and Goliath. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I think that is one of the coolest parts of this story, that all the earth may know. Think of how profound that statement was David was saying, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. Where are we? Currently sitting in relation to where this occurred. Thousands of miles away. Thousands of years into the future. And we grew up knowing this story. How crazy is that? You go into other countries, other mission fields. They may not know all the details of the Bible, but they'll know David and Goliath, most all of them. All the earth will know that there is a God in Israel because of what David did. It's so awesome. It's also interesting that the very curse, so to speak, that Goliath said on the people, I will feed you to the birds of the air, turns around and is flipped on him. It almost reminds me of Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh says to Moses the last time, the next time I see you, you will die. And God flips it back and says, okay, you just called the last plague, death. Look at verse 47. And that all this assembly will, not may, will know that the Lord saves. Awesome, awesome, the word saves there is basically Yeshua, it's Yehoshua, but that's because of the way it's worded, he saves. 
but Yeshua. All the world will know Yeshua, Yahweh. The Lord saves. What is Yeshua? Jesus. That's his name in the Old Testament, but that's his name. Okay? Uh, he saves not with spear or sword, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. He doesn't even take credit. He says, our hand, not mine, our. And here it goes, verse 48. This is left out too. And he, and he was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. He was there when the Philistine charged at David. Not a surprise to David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Um, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. Now, that's interesting. We'll come back to that. They chase him to Gath, which is where he's from. Later on in our story of David or study of David, you're going to see David goes there to escape from Saul. It's weird. Um, So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the dead is a better phrase there. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Mark that. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Now, we're going to end with it there. But David, look, David was invincible because David knew something everybody else had forgotten. David knew something everybody else had forgotten. Where had they come from to get to that land? Where had the people of Israel come from? Egypt, right? They were enslaved in Egypt. They'd forgotten all these things. He parted a sea. Listen, make a note. You don't have time. I'm going to finish up. Make a note. Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people as they're standing at the Red Sea, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation, or here's Yeshua again, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Dude, know that verse. It's easy to remember. Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's awesome. David knows this. Adrian Rogers has one of my favorite quotes. He says, the man of God and the will of God standing on the work of, word of God, doing the work of God, is invincible until that work is complete. You follow that? The man of God in the will, or woman in the will of God standing on the word of God, doing the work of God, is invincible until that work is complete. That's awesome. That's awesome. Can't be stopped. Now look, you don't have time to read all this, but David, this inspires others. This is awesome. I don't know if y'all know this. This inspires others. Did you know that Goliath had brothers? Four of them. In the Bible. Make a note. Don't have time to go there. Second Samuel 21, verse 15 through 22. And... 
You can make a note too. It's in First Chronicles chapter 20 around verse 5. It says Goliath's four brothers. They're all just like Goliath in the sense that they were all. It says each, each time it brings one up, it says that they were um, descendants of the giants. And each time one of David's servants kills them. At one point, it's David's nephew that kills one of them. That's awesome. David has inspired these other men now to fight. Same situation, but now David doesn't have to do it. These other men are actually doing it. And I got another, this is just a little interesting note that I think. I don't know this for a fact, but it's just interesting. You ever wonder why David grabbed five stones? And only used one? You think he was going to miss? I don't think so. There were five brothers. I think he was prepared for all five of them before them took off. That's what I think. And then later on, as they return to war with the Philistines, these others are knocked off. That's my. That's just me. That's Dave. Dave trying maybe making something out of nothing, but that's what I think. Now let me tell you this. This is really crazy, and you may agree with this. You may not agree with this. This is some rabbinical teaching. Pretty interesting if it's true or if it's not true. I'm not positive, but I'll share it with you, and you guys can study and weigh it out yourself. One of these guys, Second Samuel 21:20, one of these brothers, says there was again war at Goth, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on one on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was a descendant from the giants and a brother of Goliath, and so. Lizenby, and I've seen some other Hebrew commentaries that suggest this is the original 666. He was six cubits tall, had six fingers on one hand, six toes. He was the original 666. Now, what is interesting about this, whether that's true or not or what that may mean, what is interesting about that, though, get this. Where is it that Jesus died? What's the name of the place where his cross stood? Golgotha. Do you know what that means? Place of the skull. It just really means skull. It's a translation of a a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word literally is Golgoleth, which means skull. All right. Where did David take Goliath's head? Back to Jerusalem. Literally skull. Back to Jerusalem. Some people, some Hebrews believe that he buried that skull in that hill, and that's why it was called originally the Hill of the Skull, and that Jesus' cross and his crucifixion and his conquering was on top of that skull. Now, what is interesting is if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the original prediction that there would come a Messiah, it says this, listen, God is cursing the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush... Literally, ours says, bruise your head. It says, he shall crush your gogoleth, your skull. Talking about this Messiah, it says that very word, he shall crush your, you could say this way, he shall crush your Golgotha. That's pretty awesome. I don't know if that's true, if that skull's really buried there, but I think that's a pretty neat, pretty neat picture. Because what I do know is this, and this is the point of everything, guys. This is, what does this have to do with us? This is the point of everything. This story is not about David. This story is not about Goliath. If you've been here through the study of Jonah, you probably already know what I'm going to say. Who is this story about? Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this. 
I said Goliath was the man of the spaces between. That's a perfect picture of sin. He, it is the position between. It is what separates you from God. Goliath was the man of the spaces between. Translation, sin. For the wages of sin is death. We have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. You guys know it, right? Romans 3.23. If you read Romans chapter 6, it says you were a slave to sin. What did Goliath threaten them with? Slavery. Sin stood in the spaces between and made a slave out of you. Stood in the spaces between you and God and made a slave out of you, just like Goliath stood in the spaces between and made a slave or threatened to make a slave out of Israel. But if you continue to read Romans 6, you'll find out that there was a hero that stood up. If you go and you read and you know the story, right? Who was it? Jesus Christ. Listen, John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. He comes forward and he says, I will fight. How did Jesus go to that cross? Where was his 12 disciples? Where were they? Nobody knows because they were gone. Except John who stood at a distance. He was left alone. He went to that cross to fight that Goliath. If you want to be, I don't, look, I don't get into the whole what's the Goliath in your life garbage. I don't buy that. I think this is not about that. I'll tell you what the Goliath in your life is, is sin. And there was only one. You're not David. Jesus is David. You don't fight it alone. He went and fought it alone. Just like David went and fought it alone. So too did Christ go and fight it alone. Sin is Goliath. Death is the army of Goliath. And Jesus is your David. Jesus is the one that went out and fought it. David kept Goliath's weapons. Jesus kept the keys to death. It's in Revelation 118. It's awesome. He said when he rose from the dead, he claimed the keys to death in Hades. David came as a servant. Jesus came as a servant. David had stones. Jesus had nails. We can sit here all day and draw conclusions. But the bottom line is that Jesus did something for you that you could not do. Just like David went and did something that nobody else would do. When you look at this story, you need to think of Jesus. This is why David was invincible, ultimately. Because this story was about Jesus, not about David. And there is no destroying Jesus. It's been attempted. It didn't work. Which is awesome. Incredible.